Good afternoon. I'm Rhonda Feynman, and this is the Healthy Options Program on WERU Community Radio. Our guest today is Tom Schmelk, entomologist with the Maine Forest Service. He's leading the program, which is trying to tackle our severe and growing brown tail moth problem here in Maine. He also serves as a manager for other invasive insect-related programs, including winter moths, southern pine beetles, and Asian longhorn beetles that are also causing serious destruction here in Maine. Tom Schmelk earned his master's degree in entomology, and as you may have guessed by now, that's the study of insects, from the University of Illinois, and he has worked for the Bureau of Forest Health with the Department of Environmental Conservation of New York State. He came to Maine in 2018 and began his current position as a forest entomologist, and we can only imagine that he has immediately been put to work on the problem of increasing of the increasing spread of the brown tail moth. And that is that exactly the reason that we've asked him to be on Healthy Options today. We want to discuss the problem, what we have to be aware of, and how we can try to contain it. And if there are ways to decrease the devastation, definitely the devastation, that the brown tail moths and brown tail moth caterpillars can cause to trees and vegetation. And also, of course, if we can reduce the ill effects that this harmful invasive insect can bring to human health. Welcome to Healthy Options and WERU Community Radio. Tom Schmelk, we're glad you could join us today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, so let's start at the beginning. It, if you are listening to the show live um, on uh, Wednesday, um, April 7th, then you know that what, what it looks like here in Maine right now, if this is an archive program that you're listening to, this will still be relevant for future years. So it's April in Maine, Tom, and what we have this problem. What do we do? Yeah, so there's still a couple of weeks left uh, to basically go through and scout out to see where the brown tail moth populations are in your own dooryard there. Um, so basically what you can do is go out on a nice bright sunny day, look up at the tops of the trees. Um, you'll be able to see where the new fresh webs are. Uh, they'll sort of um, really pop in the sunlight and be sort of a whitish silvery color. And that'll give you a good indication of where to focus treatment. So, well, we'll start at the beginning. I know we're looking up and we see these, these they're white, right? The nests look white. And, uh, you know, we will have links to the website so people can take a look at these, at these um, kind of, uh, of, of pictures. So people will know what they're looking at. But let's start at the beginning. I think I got ahead of myself. What, are, what is the brown tail moth? Why is this an issue? And what's their life cycle? How about that for a nice introductory question? Just go for it. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so brown tail moth is a, a non-native invasive moth. Uh, so basically, brown tail moth is native to Europe, a large swath of Europe. And the population sort of uh, dips down into North Africa and then also um, up into Russia. Brown tail moth has been here since uh, 1897. It basically got introduced on some live plant material into Somerville, Massachusetts in 1897. And then it spread uh, pretty quickly through the rest of uh, New England. 
Uh, it's been established in Maine since 1904, so by no means a new problem. And there's been um, sort of population outbreaks uh, since then, uh, since that time. So in 1897, when Brown's Moth first came to this country, it only took 17 years for it to basically conquer um, all of New England and even a little bit in Southern Canada, like New Brunswick and Nova Scotia. Uh, and that's sort of a testament to how well uh, brown-tailed moth can hitchhike and spread. Wow. So, you know, the reason that we have you here on Healthy Options, um, we're going to talk uh, all about what you just said, but it's because the hairs of the brown-tailed moth are incredibly in irritating and in infectious in a way. It's not like you can catch brown tail moth rash, but it does, the hairs are toxic and they do create a rash. And so it's really important if we can eradicate or in your own environment, and we'll talk about this, the, the nests and the, and the, uh, the caterpillars now in April, um, you hopefully will not be exposed to the toxic hairs and the toxic hairs can touch the skin. They can, you can inhale them and that can cause rep respiratory problems. And we can talk a little bit as we progress about how you might want to treat that if you do have that kind of, of uh, involvement of your skin or your respiratory system. Um, so that's why this is such an important uh, conversation to have about the brown tail moths for on a healthy options program. So the brown tail moths have been here. Why has it become such an issue that we're hearing about more in the last couple of years here in, in Maine, in the mid coast? Is that in particular or is it all over Maine? It's in a large swath of Maine uh, currently. So like any forest pest, brown tail moth uh, sort of moves in outbreak cycles. So there'll be a outbreak cycle and very, very generally um, with forest insects, uh, those outbreak cycles can last anywhere between seven to 10 years. And this is very generally speaking. So um, we're currently in the middle of, of one of these outbreaks. And then once the population becomes very uh, high, it's sort of ripe for a, a pandemic of its own and with brown tail moth, uh, they have a virus associated with them, and then also a fungus called Entomophaga alaki associated with them. So uh, these outbreaks, you know, I think we're we're basically in the sixth year of this outbreak. Um, hopefully, we will get some re relief since the populations are um, have built up to this level that they are currently. Uh, this outbreak started in 2015, so we are are well due for um, for the outbreak to to sort of end, hopefully. Well, <laughs> well we hope. So, I, also, there's a whole sense of of climate, right? Of the the wet uh, wet spring. So we're very happy, the, the two of us, as we were discussing, to look outside and see that it's raining a little bit, um, because I think that's that that. While we may not want it to rain as much, um, in terms of controlling brown tail, tail moths, why would that be a good thing? So the crucial time to sort of have cool, wet weather is May or June, and that's when the caterpillars are out and they're foraging, and uh, they'll be able to um, pick up some of these fungal spores. Um, so the 
fungus really proliferates and spreads in these cool, wet conditions. Uh, so we're kind of keeping our fingers crossed that this wet weather that we have today and later this week will sort of continue into to May and June into that crucial time. And uh, once the fungus um, sort of starts inoculating caterpillars, it, it does kind of spread like wildfire. And the last uh, population outbreak that we had of the fungus uh, was in two th spring of 2019, uh, when we had basically really wet weather up until the end of June. And um, we may, we mo mostly saw that uh, population um, collapse in the Cumberland, Yarmouth, Freeport area up to Whitefield um, and that sort of area. It wasn't quite enough to get up to the leading edge, um, which sort of stretches from China, Vassalboro, uh, east to Belfast, and then uh, north on the coast. Right, right. Up, up to uh, to where WBRU is located and, and right up there. So that fungus is something we really want. Is that something we can, not, you can't introduce it, it, can you? Or is that? So it's a naturally occurring fungus. It's, I believe it is native to Europe, uh, the native range of brown tail moth. Uh, but unfortunately, no pesticide company has um, sort of weaponized that fungus just because it's a quote unquote uh, just a main problem and it would take um, a lot of money and resources to weaponize that fungus and, and make it into a product that people could use. Well, I think it's also a, a, a little bit tricky to, as we know from past experiences in introducing something that really isn't native to our environment. We don't know what the repercussions would be. Yeah. Yes, we're dealing with the brown tail moths, but it's not like we live in a, a, a mono universe. <laughs> Everything is, is, is connected. So again, give us, give us again the life cycle. Uh, re remind us of what we're looking at and why now is an important time to, um, to be dealing with this. Yeah, definitely. So we'll start with what life stage they are at currently. So currently they are in their, uh, they're still um, dormant in their winter webs. And these winter webs are palm-sized webs um, right at the, the tips of the branches. Preferred hosts in Maine that you'll find these winter webs on are oak, uh, any fruit trees, so apple, pear, quince, uh, our native cherry tree, um, and then birch, elm, and poplar. Those are probably the, the major hosts that we see it on, but it does have a pretty wide host range. They're definitely not picky eaters. So these palm-sized winter webs, each one of them contains between 25 and 400 caterpillars or more than that. So clipping out any of the ones that you can reach uh, will be doing yourself a world of good. Wait, can, can you give that number again? How many are in there? Uh, every single one of those small webs contains uh, between 25 and over 400 caterpillars. Okay, everyone, think about that. And yes, continue. <laughs> so uh, typically in, in late April, uh, early May, it's usually when the weather is about 50 degrees out pretty reliably. Uh, the caterpillars will emerge from their winter webs and they'll sort of um, bask on the outside of the webs trying to warm up. And they're timing that basically with, with bud break and when the leaves are, will be opening so that they'll have something to eat. Uh, one thing to 
to also mention um, is that these caterpillars are, are very, very small. That's the reason why there can be so many uh, in a web. They're, they're probably about the size of uh, some, like a sprinkle that you would put on, on ice cream. Uh, so very, very small. So uh, late April, early May, when the caterpillars become active, they'll start feeding and they will basically uh, feed from that late April uh, time span um, all the way into late June. Uh, what, which is when they will uh, pupate uh, or spin a cocoon to, to turn into a moth. Um, but during that whole feeding, um, feeding for months during the summer, they will, uh, every time the caterpillar grows larger, they will shed their skin um, in order to, to increase in size. And so the caterpillars have the toxic hairs and uh, the shed skins. So each time that they shed their skin, they're also shedding those toxic hairs. Um, and then in late June, early July, when they are uh, spinning that web to pupate, they will impregnate that uh, the silk from, from that cocoon. Uh, they will, it's basically they're, they're doing that because they're at a very vulnerable stage in, in their life, uh, life cycle. Uh, so they'll impregnate that, um, that cocoon with those toxic hairs in order to to protect themselves. Um, so they're in that cocoon stage probably for a couple of weeks um, and then they will emerge as adult moths and the adult moths are pure white um, except for the abdomen which is brown which is why they're called brown tail moth. Um, so we always sort of caution that people uh, you know, as the moths are, are coming out of their pupil cocoons, they might, you know, pick up one of those, uh, a few of those toxic hairs when they're exiting the cocoon, but um, the adults do not have those toxic hairs that um, the caterpillars and the, and the pupa do. So you're saying that the moths are not toxic? The moths themselves are not toxic. Um, they, even though they do have those hairs on their abdomen, uh, those are not those toxic um, hollow barbed hairs. Um, that the caterpillars have. So those are barbed tears and that's how they get on the skin? Do they burrow in or is it, how um, does that work? So, yeah, so the hairs that are on the caterpillars, um, they are, so they're, like I said before, they're um, barbed and hollow. So not only are you getting a mechanical irritation from the barbs on the hairs, but you're also getting a chemical irritation. And those hairs will, will stick in your pores, they'll stick in your skin um, and, and cause you know, both, both types of that irritation. So a couple, many questions are coming to mind. Let's start with that first. So if you are exposed, take a shower. If you don't put your clothes out, what, right? Cause it's in the, it's in the um, don't dry your clothes in the summer breeze anymore. That's so, so distressing for so many of us. <laughs> yeah, so I myself also love laundry that's, that's hanging out in the line. It's just got a special feel and a special smell. But if you are living in an area with uh, a high infestation of brown tail moth, um, you're gonna wanna dry your, your clothes inside. Uh, those hairs can become airborne, especially if it's been dry, like uh, the droughts that we've had in the past few, few years. 
uh, those hairs can become airborne and, and blow into your sheets. Um, and if you thought ants in your pants were, were really bad, you don't want to um, have brown tail moth hairs in your pants. No, or on your t-shirt or on your shorts. Uh, anyway, yeah, so, um, so there's that. There's also the sense of washing. Oak, uh, sometimes oatmeal baths can be helpful. Um, a hydrocortisone kind of cream if uh, on that route anything that uh, will decrease inflammation. There are certainly homeopathic remedies, other herbal remedies. If it gets really bad and you've inhaled them, some people have had to go to the hospital and you really do want to pay attention if you're in, if you have shortness of breath. So to avoid that, we can get back to the sense of what to do to prevent that kind of exposure. Of course, if you are doing yard work, long pants, long shirts. What else? Now, shirts. Of course, um, in our years now, we're, we're used to masks at this point. So it's not such a, uh, an unusual thing now to uh, have a mask on hand. What else do you recommend, Tom? <laughs> yeah, so um, a lot of things that you mentioned are, are very applicable. Uh, so if you know that you are very sensitive to the hairs, you're going to want to make sure that you take every precaution that you can. Uh, so like you mentioned, mask, um, goggles if if you are you know leaf blowing and, and are blowing a lot of um, material around long sleeves uh, even taped at the cuffs uh, if you can um, gloves long sleeve pants and one of the things that you're going to want to make sure um, a precaution is that when you are removing these clothes that you believe may have come into contact with hairs you're going to want to make sure that you're very careful in, in taking those off because the hairs that are on the outside can, you know, pretty easily uh, wind up on your face if you're, you know, taking off your shirt. Uh, that's a, a common way that people, if, if they are taking the pr proper precautions, um, there's still a, a risk there. So I've uh, heard of people actually having a, it literally like a Tyvek suit that they put on. And so what you're taking off is this toxic suit. I believe uh, we did this conversation with um, some uh, specialist, um, Ellie Groton, a, a number of years ago. And while she, she was about to go in the field and was describing how she was covered from head to toe with a particular uh, garment, uh, it was sort of like a hazmat suit, practically. Do you wear that kind of thing when you're out in the uh, in the field? Or what, how do you handle it? Uh, so avoid uh, avoiding exposure is probably the the most um, most important tool in this toolbox. So luckily, I don't have a severe reaction. It's just sort of a um, sort of a mild rash that I get. Nothing. Um, nothing excruciating, but um, doing some of that work with uh, Ellie Groden and her grad student, Carla Boyd, um, we did uh, sort of suit up when we were, we were doing yeah. some of that work. Well, uh, if you just joined us, by the way, this is Healthy Options on WERU Community Radio. I'm Rhonda Feynman. We're here with entomologist Tom Schmelt from the Maine Forest Service, who is charged with managing the state's response to the brown tail moth problem. And we're learning about all the ways that we can keep ourselves safe from those toxic hairs. And yes, so when we're in this time of year, April, if you're listening to this live here on WERU, 
we are seeing the webs. Are the are the the caterpillars toxic at this point? You said that they're about the size of a sprinkle in the in those webs. Are they toxic now? Yeah. So um, there's sort of been uh, differing evidence, but um, all indications do do point out that the uh, the very small caterpillars do have those hairs. Um, typically the larger the caterpillar is, the more toxic hairs that it is. So the uh, sort of the risk goes up as the, the season goes on and as the caterpillars get bigger. So um, one thing I, I forgot to mention um, when we were talking about the life cycle. So as those moths, so as the adult moths emerge in July, um, they'll mate and they'll, the females will lay eggs on, on the host foliage um, and those eggs will sort of be covered, um, she'll sort of cover them up with the hairs from her uh, abdomen. And again, those are not the toxic hairs you have to worry about. That's just sort of a mechanical protection um, for the eggs against predators. But those eggs will hatch out in August and uh, those caterpillars will start feeding communally. Um, so again, 25 to 400 caterpillars um, feeding together. Uh, and this is happening in, in August and September. So basically uh, they'll be feeding together and the, and the type of leaf damage that they're doing at this time is called skeletonization. It's basically they're not consuming the whole leaf. They are just uh, grazing on the outer surface of the leaf um, which causes it to die and turn sort of a coppery bronze, bronzish color. Uh, and at this time also as they're feeding communally they will also communally start building this winter web which they'll spend um, all winter. So the best time to deal with them, I, I, my, my understanding, this is new, that, that the time to deal with them and you can touch things a little bit more is, is in the winter. Is that, is that right up to about now in April before we get those 50 degree days when they decide to emerge? <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, um, we, we typically do? recommend that people can start uh, uh, clipping out the webs um, in December. Basically, once the leaves are off the trees, you'll be able to to see these winter webs, you know, pretty vis visibly. Uh, the leaves can obviously obscure a lot of the webs, so you might miss them if you're clipping out before them. Um, but yeah, you can basically clip uh, anytime from December until uh, mid-April, or even start earlier if uh, we get some big windstorms and, and the leaves are off the trees. So what do you do when you've clipped these? Do we just leave them there? Abandon oh. them? Abandon them? You know, <laughs> no, don't do that. That's <laughs> a good point. Do? So uh, when you clip out these winter webs, if, if you're able to reach them, uh, you're gonna wanna destroy them if you don't destroy them. Um, they will, they're very, very good at finding food and they have a, a pretty um, tenacious survival instinct and they will crawl right back up on the trees and it'll be like you hadn't done anything. So once you clip these webs, um, pick up any that have fallen on the ground and you'll wanna put them in a bucket of soapy water to soak for a couple of days. And then, um, or you can, you can uh, burn them and, and put them um, in your wood stove or, or have a burn barrel outside. So the, tox the hairs aren't toxic when you do something with burning and they're fumes. It's not like 
they become toxic in that way. I'm thinking of poison ivy. If you sometimes burn it, you're still creating some sort of toxic environment. Yeah, so there's a, a couple of, of good things uh, about about the hairs. Uh, so the hairs will, so the toxin is denatured in, in high temperatures. Um, so you'll be burning, um, you'll be burning up those hairs so that the fire will, de will destroy the toxin and the hairs. Um, but also the caterpillars that made that web are, are very small. They have less of those toxic hairs and they're also woven um, inside that web. Um, but again, we, we always recommend that if you do know that you're severely allergic, um, just take every precaution, um, go the soapy, um, the water and the soap, soapy bucket uh, route. Rather than burning. And, you know, many of us don't know if hopeful, if we're blessed enough not to have been exposed, I think we should all just assume I, I don't know. We can have the conversation about risk aversion. Uh, that may be another uh, another healthy options program where we talk about the pandemic and risk aversion. Um, now we're talking about the brown tail moth pandemic and risk aversion. I say everyone just assume that you might have a reaction. So that's it. I'm giving my my, my recommendation is to uh, do the soapy water unless you know for sure, or it's a contained environment when you're burning. That's, that's my uh, healthy options, unsolicited advice. <laughs> what else are people doing? Are there, uh, now, there can be pretty high up. I know out here, for years and years, we saw nothing. And then last year, in, and I'm in, in Belfast, in, the, in town, and on our compost pile, we saw these, we saw the brown tail moth. And maybe you could describe what uh, the actual caterpillar, to describe what that looks like. You know, we haven't actually discussed what the, how do you dis uh, distinguish it from another kind of, of caterpillar. But we saw them on our compost um, and it was like, oh my goodness. And at that point, it was too late. We actually had looked in all of our trees and in the winter, I found them very hard to see. We did not see the, the, uh, the uh, webs we thought we didn't have any, and then lo and behold, there they were. So, yes. So those caterpillars, um, they don't. Re There's a, lo a lot of furry caterpillars in Maine, but brown tail moth um, doesn't really resemble many of our, our native caterpillars. Probably the two most diagnostic features are uh, each segment of the body sort of is uh, flanked by these um, white marks on each side. And then also probably the most distinguishing feature is these two hunter orange dots towards the tail end. Um, there's only one other native caterpillar that has those um, has those two dots on the tail end, and that's white marked tussock moth. And if you Google that, uh, you'll be able to to see uh, there's quite a bit of difference between the two. We'll have pictures, and we'll also have links to. It's on the Maine Forest Service website. You can see the distinction. So there will be pictures and um, ways for you to be able to do uh, distinguish these moths. Are they, is that the, the one that you just mentioned, is that everywhere in, in Maine? As you say, it's native, but is that something you would just see in your backyard? The, the, the one that's not toxic? Yes. Uh, wait, so to say that it's not toxic might, might be a, might be, um, oh. Yeah, so 
Oh so my goodness, with, good. We're getting into uh, some good nitty gritty about the distinguishing of toxic. Please. Oh, by yeah. the way, um, if you've just joined us, this is uh, the Healthy Options Program. Um, we are distinguishing toxicity with uh, Tom Schmelt from the Maine Forest Service. He's the entomologist there who's working with a team of others on handling invasive insect species, which are causing havoc here in Maine. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. So white moth, toxic moth is native to the Northeast. So it is found uh, in most of Maine. But the, uh, so with any of these hairy caterpillars in general, whether it be brown tail, Eastern ten, or gypsy moth, or, or many of the other hairy caterpillars, uh, different people differ in their uh, sensitivity to these caterpillars caterpillar hairs. So I would say that none of them are quite as bad as brown tail is, but people do react to uh, some of these different tussock moth species, particularly uh, white marked tussock moth, like we mentioned before, and hickory tussock moth, but definitely uh, nowhere near as severe as brown tail. So there we are. We've seen them now. They're, if you were not fortunate enough or on top of it enough or whatever, uh, didn't know enough to actually clip them now. Uh, what do you do when you see them? I mean, do we put those, do you spray the moths? Is there something we should do? Do you put those in soapy water as well? Yeah, so there are, there's a few options uh, available to the homeowners. So like many people, if you don't notice uh, that you have a brown tail moth infestation um, and suddenly it's, you know, late May Memorial Day weekend and there's tons of large caterpillars crawling all over your house and all over your deck. Um, so one of the options is uh, if you have a, a shop back with a, a really good HEPA filter, if you put a couple of inches of soapy water in the bottom of that, uh, you'll be able to suck up the caterpillars. And so the soapy water does two things. It, one, kills the caterpillars, but also prevents the hairs from uh, becoming airborne and, and, you know, blowing right outside the other um, side of that vacuum. So you can do that. So you're putting the soapy water in the vac. Don't touch them. Do not pick them up. Do not squish them. Don't step on them. Right? Yeah, all of the above. Uh, try to have as, as little contact with those um, little caterpillars as possible. So don't get the sense, oh, look, I see them in my yard. I should just go get the lawnmower out. What, what do you think of that technique, Tom? <laughs> probably not <laughs> Probably not super advised to, to mow them down. And um, so typically people come into contact with the hairs uh, most commonly when they're doing yard work. So mowing the lawn or raking leaves or leaf blowing, moving brush, stuff like that. So areas to, to be more aware of uh, the hairs are sort of sheltered areas. So under a RV boat trailer, under a deck, places that don't get a whole lot of precipitation, uh, those are where the hairs, you know, those places are, are sort of dry and those hairs can become airborne again and, uh, and give you a, a, a pretty nasty rash. So, yes. So, yes. Do not do that because, right, you're cutting them up and then that, 
Okay. I, 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 this is when we get into the creepy crawly part of healthy options. We're going to be having conversations about uh, Lyme disease and ticks. And I think everybody starts itching at, uh, at around this part of the conversation. So everyone just take a breath. If you're sitting in your home or in your car, you probably don't have, have, the, uh, have anything crawling on you right at this moment. So just take a breath. Let's all do that. They do hitch rides, these little caterpillars. And um, I've um, spoken to some arborists who say when they come home after working that they have to treat the underside of their trucks on the wheels and the wheel wells. Um, I have people driving into my office. I often say, do not bring me any gifts. <laughs> so what should people be doing? How do you inspect that? What, what are you looking for? Yeah, so like you mentioned, brown tail moth is probably one of the best hitchhikers, um, along with its cousin, gypsy moth. So the life stages that can hitchhike rides are the caterpillars, for sure. That's probably one of the most common ways. Um, also, when the caterpillars are, are wandering around looking for a, a place to pupate and spin that cocoon to turn into a moth, uh, they will do that in basically any sheltered area, whether it be on the host tree under the eaves or on a boat trailer RV or a car that's been parked for a little while. Um, the adults can also hitchhike rides, although I think this is a little bit less common than the caterpillars, but there have been a couple of new satellite infestations that we found um, this year during our winter web survey. Um, we found it in Aroostook County for the first time um, in probably 40 or 50 years in two separate locations. And both those locations are most likely due to uh, the, the caterpillars hitchhiking a ride. Um, and remember at the beginning of the presentation, uh, there, it basically only took 17 years for it to go from initial introduction to it conquering New England and parts of Southern Canada. Wow. So let's, let's talk again about um, what they do. They come out of these, they come out of their, their webs, they start eating. Do they come down trees? Do they crawl up trees? I've seen them on trees. They crawl up trees. They go back into their, their little webs right about now. Tell me, let's get clear about that. Why do we see them on? They, they don't just come down and stay down or what do, what do they do? Uh, so when the caterpillars are very young, uh, they'll sort of, they'll more hang out right on the web or right around the web. And they'll sort of, um, basically defoliate that branch that the web is on. And then as the caterpillars get larger, they get a little bit more adventurous and they will travel, travel a little bit further away from the web. But um, when they are young, they're very gregarious still. And that's sort of a, uh, a mechanism to, to fend off predators, you know, uh, strength in numbers. So uh, as the caterpillars get older, they become less gregarious. So right around, late May is typically when we see the first movement, you know, large movement of caterpillars sort of wandering around. And basically during the stage, um, some of them crawl down the trunks of the tree, but a lot of them drop straight out of the tree um, or if they, they run out of food in that tree. So the, the foliation will start obviously up where the webs are. And during the season, it will progress lower and lower down into the tree. Um, but a lot of these caterpillars will, will fall right out of the tree and, and wander around looking for um, another tree to, 
to go to bushes stuff like that so that they they just fall down they just say we're we're on the move that's it so what do you um I guess again, my I have five questions in my in my mind right now. Just uh, so you're using the wet vac to soak them up. Would you you would you would use that even if you just see them? Well, if you see them crawling, do you do you have to spray something? Now, what what is there? Would there be something that's less toxic or? that for the environment and for other insects and birds, how would we handle that if you find that, that you have that kind of infestation? Yeah, so the wet vac is mostly just for if they're, you know, right on your, your building, uh, crawling up the siding or, or on the deck, that's more of a, just a localized control. Uh, I've heard of people spraying, uh, just mixing up soapy water um, in a, a canister and, and spraying that on the caterpillars if, if they're crawling on the ground. Um, if the cat so more of the treatment is focused when the caterpillars are still um, on the host trees or host foliage. And there's a few different options um, available for homeowners to, to treat trees. Uh, the first that we recommend is, is obviously to clip those webs, but one of the major problems with brown tail moth management in Maine is that most of them are in these very tall, uh, mature oak trees right at the very tips. So definitely out of reach for even a pole pruner. Uh, so then there's a, a few other options um, besides clipping. So uh, one of the options is injections and um, each of these options definitely has its pros and cons, but uh, for injections, basically you're drilling a very small hole uh, small holes in the tree uh, every four to six inches around the tree and you'll be putting in a, um, a capsule that's pressurized and that it, you'll basically be injecting a systemic insecticide into the tree that goes up um, to the leaves and will will, uh, will kill any insect that is feeding on those leaves um, so obviously some non-target effects there um, then there are um, if you don't want to go the injection route, um, there is, uh, you know, people hire, uh, pesticide applicators to do hydraulic spraying. Um, and there are, are a few things that, um, pesticide ap applicators use for treating brown tail moth. Um, I'll talk about, uh, some of the biorational pesticides and, and biorational means that they're derived from a quote unquote natural, um, natural source. So first one is uh, that's typically sprayed for brown tail is called BTK. Um, it stands for Bacillus thuringiensis kursaki. And uh, BTK is a soil bacterium. Um, and I believe that it uh, creates a, a protein that's uh, that will erode the gut lining of caterpillars. So it's, it's specific to just caterpillars. Um, you have to they have to consume it in order to um, to be affected, and BT only last. It breaks down in the sunlight pretty readily, so it only lasts a day or so um, on the foliage. Um, so that's one of the more common ones that is sprayed, and then um, spinosad is one of the other common ones that is sprayed. Spinosad um, 
is derived from a bacterium that's uh, subjected to a very specific fermentation process in order to get the active ingredient spinosad. Uh, and that's what a lot of um, a lot of organic farms use for, um, you know, just general insect uh, control on their uh, on their crops. So one of the bad things about uh, spinosa is that it is not specific um, to caterpillars, and it will um, affect any any insect that it gets on. So um, just use it. You you know, we recommend that applicators use it very sparingly um, or in a very targeted manner. Um, and then some of the, uh, one of the other options that I don't talk about too often um, is tree removal, but we, we have the main forest service. We love our trees and we don't recommend um, that you cut your trees down just for brown tail. Um, I always say that it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem, brown tail will not always be here, but your oak tree will hopefully be here in, in a few hundred years. Um, but it is sort of a, a one and done option. And if you were going to take out the tree um, anyway, or you don't value the tree, um, it is an option for, for folks. So two things. Um, one is that when the moth has devastated the trees and you see all these dead, the, the trees look dead. Well, the leaves are all brown and, and it looks very de defoliated. One can assume that the tree is not alive anymore and make a mistake. Can these trees come back from that kind of devastation? Yeah, definitely. So I get that, um, get that question a lot. Typically when um, late spring, early summer, when the caterpillars are, um, are really consuming a lot and, and sort of stripping the trees. Um, so many trees, especially oak, are very tolerant of defoliation and they can be defoliated um, a few years in a row and, um, and not succumb uh, or have any mortality. Um, but that being said, uh, in Maine, often it's not just brown tail moth eating these oak trees. In Maine, we also have winter moth and gypsy moth, um, as well as some other defoliators. And those additional stressors also coupled with um, the drought that we've had the past few years um, can negatively affect trees um, and they, they can succumb to, um, to defoliation. If you are just joining us, I'm Rhonda Feynman. You're listening to Healthy Options on WERU Community Radio. Our guest today is Tom Schmelk, the Maine Forest Service entomologist. He is working with teams of others on handling the invasive insect species, which are causing havoc here in Maine. Specifically, we're discussing the brown tail moth problem this year. And we are continuing our conversation. You've mentioned a couple of things here. One is that these hairs can uh, get on food or they're in the yard. So how do we deal with that? Can we eat food that people have gardens here in Maine? What do we do um, if you have brown tail moths and you have a garden? Can you eat that food? So I get that question uh, uh, quite a bit. And I don't think there is sort of a one definitive answer for that. Um, I've asked some of my colleagues up at, um, Humane Cooperative Extension. And I think the general consensus is that as long as you uh, 
wash the vegetables thoroughly, uh, you should be able to uh, to consume them. And I don't think I've ever heard of anybody um, having adverse effects to um, consuming brown tail moth hairs. It's it's mostly just the skin um, and some respiratory issues. Consuming. Oh, the skin on our skin. Yes, because what we've been discussing here we are on healthy options is how these toxic hairs of the brown tail moth can cause rashes, can cause internal respiratory issues. Um, if uh, you have breathing issues, and many people do, especially uh, post COVID these days, uh, we are in a different world in terms of how people would affect, be affected possibly by uh, other kinds of toxins in the environment. And you know, having you on Healthy Options is, is uh, another indication of just about how connected we really all are. Someone might say, well, we're, we're discussing moths and we're discussing trees on Healthy Options. Yes, we are, because that connection of we live as we live in an environment and how we our environment is altered or what's naturally in our environment affects us as well. And so we are the terrain. We have to learn how to adapt and live successfully with everything that's around us. And we do have invasive species, as we've learned, the brown tail moth is one of them. Um, so we, here we are having this conversation of how to protect ourselves and how to live in, uh, hopefully, um, get a handle on the invasive species, but also know how to uh, adapt ourselves um, right here in, in, uh, in Maine and in, in our environment for brown tail moths and other, other things as well. So we are uh, continuing our conversation here, as I said, with the uh, Maine Forest Service um, entomologist, forest entomologist, Tom uh, Schmalk right here on um, healthy options. So we've really gone through uh, quite a gamut here to understand what to do, but here we are back again in April, and now is a good time. What kind of techniques are you using? Do you clip right at the branch? Uh, if you see these these um, the nests right now, you don't have to take the whole branch off. You just need to uh, tell us where to clip and what kind of tools, and do we need to hire an arborist? Do we need to get someone up there uh, crawling up our trees to get really high? What do we need to do? Yeah, so... Um... With, when you're clipping webs in your own yard, uh, there's a few tools that um, will definitely come in handy. So um, uh, hand pruners or snap cuts, um, gloves. If you have a pole pruner, um, pole pruners will definitely help you reach some of those taller webs. Um, and if you need to, to go even further up in the tree, um, it would probably be good to have a, a buddy there to put a ladder for you um, and using the ladder and the pole printer in concert um, will help you get most of the webs, at least in the lower trees. And I guess if they're very, very high, you would need a professional. Yes, um, definitely. With, who knows how to safely get up to the top of your tree. And and we, we did hire someone who is, is a very uh, wonderful to watch with all the ropes and he's quite the expert gets, you know, climbs way up. And then some people have machines, I guess, where you can uh, like the, uh, what do they call those? The machines that go up, they go up high and they clip. Come on, come on, Tom, help me out here. Make <laughs> <laughs> like a scissor lift or something. Maybe. There you go. <laughs> right. 
Um, yes. Uh, so you definitely want to do that. That uh, Definitely take care of it before it gets on your skin. And if that is on your skin, again, the showers, oat, uh, really oatmeal baths can be very helpful with different homeopathics, hydrocortisone creams if you, uh, if you need to. So I know that there are some other kinds of proprietary formulas from some uh, pharmacists around Maine. I'm not, uh, we don't, necessarily advised for very specifics, but people can just kind of get that idea of, uh, of what they need to do to protect themselves or to deal with the symptoms. And obviously showers right away. You know, if you remember at the beginning, uh, if people were wearing gloves at the beginning of the pandemic and, and us medical people know how to do this, when you take a glove off or something that's contaminated, you fold it away from you and then you use the other glove to uh, wrap around the first glove you took off. So you're never touching the contaminated side and practicing taking um, a, a, a shirt or uh, something that you've been out in the yard with, taking those off carefully, rolling them away from you so that the exposed area of the, of the clothing of the material is, is not, uh, you're not in contact with that. It takes a little practice, but it's doable. And as we talked about earlier, Tom Schmalk out and his crew out in the field uh, wearing quite a lot of, uh, of hazmat practically suits, what is, right? And, and taping the, uh, the, the areas of the ankles and the wrists. You wear, do you wear a respirator or a mask? How do you do that? And masks, of course. Um, so in the past, pre-COVID, um, I did not wear a mask um, doing a lot of this research. Um, but we, you know, everybody going on more than a year now, um, we're all just more used to masks. So I, I typically have mine on when I'm doing a lot of this work now. Um, but yeah, just proper uh, personal protective equipment. Um, just making sure that you're uh, you're you're mitigating your risk of coming into contact with the hairs. Um, often, if I have to to go into a uh, really highly infested area, I'll try to make sure that I time that site visit um, with a, a a day you know right after it's rained or very early in the morning when they there is still dew around and and that wetness will help keep the the hairs from really blown around. So should people not be, uh, well, so, so uh, should people not be mowing their lawns? <laughs> yeah. So, um, with the, the lawn mowing, I definitely, definitely still mow your lawn, but, um, there are a few options. One is hiring uh, a lawn company to, um, you know, bag, you know, cut your lawn, bag the clippings up, take them off site. Uh, that will help. Um, but yeah, working on, um, on days that after it's rained or in the morning uh, when they're still due on on the lawn. Believe me, I know it's not fun uh, mowing a wet grass, but it, it will help um, keep you from getting uh, a lot of those hairs. So getting back to the idea of treatment and pesticides and, and that kind of thing, um, you know, we're just, especially uh, my listeners, very, very conscious about adding toxins into the environment. So would you say that the soapy water, when, when do we have to go big with uh, other kinds of chemicals and when, when can the soapy water just do, do the job if, and get a sprayer and, and, and do that? What's, what, what, when would you know 
that uh that um, you you need like uh oh this isn't working yeah so it's it's definitely situational um so i've had people call that are you know right in the hot zone tons and tons of of uh caterpillars you know right in the area and they they are very adamant that they do not want to spray so some people just don't spray and do any mechanical clipping that they they can and go that route um myself personally i'm not a big fan of spraying um and that's one of the reasons why clipping out the webs early um is probably the best method to to go with uh there's basically no non-target effects. Um, you're getting them when the hair activity is very low in the winter. Um, you're, you'll be able to see them. And like we mentioned before, you're getting, um, you know, 25 to 400 um, each web that you're clipping out. Um, but for, you know, for people that are um, in the, the highly infested area, you know, basically, you know, going out onto your deck and you're sort of swarming around. Um, that, again, it's a, a personal preference, but that might be a, an indication that you might um, want to try the shop back method, uh, spraying soapy water, um, or if you deem it necessary, um, hiring a uh, an exterminator to come or um, a pesticide applicator to come and, and treat those roaming caterpillars. There's uh, ideas uh, about the light. We didn't talk about that, that the moths are attracted to light. Now, are, are eradicating the moths, which are the males, uh, beneficial to keep the population down and lights and zappers and all of those kinds of things? What's, uh, what, what do you recommend doing and not doing? So very glad that you brought that up. Um, so brown toe moth is attracted to light, but it's heavily skewed towards males. So it's something uh, along the lines of a ratio of like 16 males to one female. It's mostly males that come to light. Um, the females tend to hang out on the host foliage just outside of the reach of the light. And, uh, and you know, not, not really be affected by any um, light control methods. So that being said, a lot of people, you know, ask me, you know, I killed a bunch of moths at my light. Am I doing any good? And unfortunately, um, I speak for for the males in the audience. Unfortunately, we do not matter too much biologically, and it, it only takes a few males to to really prop up the population. Um, brown tail moth management is uh, sort of similar to to deer management. If you want to really affect the population. Um, it's more of the, the females that you have to go after, the ones that, um, that really, you know, hold the population up. So um, one of the common questions that I usually get is, you know, I, I have a light trap or a bug zapper, um, you know, is that helping me out? Uh, and unfortunately, again, like I said before, it's mostly males that are coming to light. Um, so it's not effective in that respect, but also um, there are, you know, parasitic wasps and flies that do give, uh, do attack brown toe moth and give some control. And a lot of those are attracted to UV light. So when you have your bug zapper out, you're actually probably hurting more than you're helping. Um, and one last point about light. Uh, so in, in July and August, when the, the females are out, um, or 
the adult moths are flying, you're going to want to make sure, um, if you can, that you keep your lights off between um, nine and midnight. And that will, keeping your lights off at night is good for many, many reasons, but um, it will will help you from artificially increasing the, the population in your, your own dooryard. And all right, because they're, they're attracted and, and, and we'll, we'll stick around a little bit more. So no zappers, please. And turn your lights off. Wow. We are really, uh, we're, 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 what else would you like to add? We're, we do have some time left and we are, we're touching a lot of these areas. Let's, Let's review, Tom, what, what, what haven't we touched? Uh, by the way, if you've just turned in, tuned in right here to WERU, this is Healthy Options. And I am Rhonda Feynman. Our guest today is Tom Schmelk, the forest entomologist with the Maine Forest Service. He's heading up the program dealing with the brown tail moth invasion here in Maine. Now, you said something at the beginning uh, about that, that there, this comes in cycles and we possibly could be at the end of the cycle, but with the, if it's very dry, that could be a problem. How do we, how do, we don't really know about, do we know about the cycles? How do we know? But, yeah, so um, the cycles with brown tail moth um, are sort of erratic and typically what crashes a, a population outbreak is uh, that, that fungus, Entomophaga alaki, um, and those cool wet conditions that promote the fungus in May and June. So predicting uh, when this brown tail outbreak will uh, subside is sort of just like predict predicting the weather because it's directly tied with it. Um, there's a lot of population dynamics um, with brown tail moth, but um, probably the, the main control is that fungus um, along with uh, the virus that's associated with brown tail, which also um, proliferates in those conditions, um, and then also the, the parasitic wasps and flies that, that do attack brown tail to some extent. So we don't know where that's at, uh, we're, where we're at with that yet, because it's we are doing the show in April. And so is it too soon to say for 2021? Yeah, I definitely think it's a little too soon. I would say if we start getting cool wet, um, you know, cool wet weather, a lot of rain um, in early May. That's a very good sign that we will um, see a fungal outbreak and, and a subsequent um, population decline. So one thing I should mention um, with these population, you know, outbreaks, sort of, um, sort of like a bell curve. When you're building population on, on one side of that bell curve, it takes a number of years for it to reach peak population. And then when, once those populations are, are really high, like I had mentioned before, they're sort of ripe for a pandemic of their own. Um, and that disease will sort of spread rapid fire through the population. Um, on the other side of the, the bell curve, um, once the population starts declining, it's not necessarily like it, uh, the population dives off a cliff. It usually takes a, a couple of years um, for it to subside. But um, like the population collapse we saw in 2019 in the Cumberland Yarmouth Freeport area and, and Whitefield and Jefferson. Um, typically, um, you know, that, that population really was quite reduced. And, and the, a lot of those towns saw um, relief in 2020 as a result of that spring of 2019 outbreak. Well, let's hope that we are on that side. Clip away. 
it's still April. Clip, clip, clip. Put the everything in soapy water. If you do see the caterpillars, don't forget to put those in soapy water and don't touch them. Take good precautions to keep yourself safe. We are running out of time and we could just keep going. I think there's, and then we could talk about all the other kinds of insects that we have to, uh, uh, to, uh, to be uh, aware of. But anyway, right now, our, I wanna thank um, everybody for tuning in. Our guest on Healthy Options today has been Tom Schmelk, forest entomologist with the Maine Forest Service. Thank you so much for being on Healthy Options today and for the work you're doing for all of us here in Maine. There, there was an excellent Zoom presentation about brown tail moths that Tom Schmelk gave recently through the Belfast Library. And you can find that YouTube video by searching Waldo County brown tail moth. We'll have a link to that and other information when we post the show on the public affairs archives on weru.org. We'll have a link to the Forest Service website so you can see pictures of everything we've discussed. In the meantime, if you missed any part of this program or would like to share it, please go to weru.org to find our recent programs on demand. Thanks to Joel Mann and Amy Brown of WERU for engineering support and to Petra Hall for production assistance. And as always, thank you all of our WERU listeners and supporters. This is Rhonda Feynman wishing you the best in health.